Good morning and welcome once again. A pleasure to have you as our guests. And I'd like to ask you to also join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers at this time. My name is Danny Asaf, and I am the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And thank you all, both our members and guests and our viewers, for joining us today. For decades, the, the Canadian Club has been proud of its history to offer this venue for the free and open exchange of critical ideas for the day. Through our programs and activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, media and social, uh, social media partnerships, we offer you access to dynamic political, business and public figures from abroad and, of course, from here at home. Before I take the opportunity to introduce our guest speakers, if you'd just allow me the indulgence of giving you a small window into some of our other exciting upcoming events, uh, if you will. On February 4th, we're proud to host uh, Elise Allen, the President and CEO of GE Canada, and she will sh share her thoughts on the future of work, including highlights from GE's new 2016 Global Innovation Barometer. And on February 16th, we're equally proud to be hosting a distinguished panel of Canadians moderated by Bloomberg's Amanda Lang and featuring the Right Honourable Prime Minister, uh, Paul, uh, Right Honourable Paul Martin, <laughs> David Rosenberg, and the Honourable Michael Wilson, and they'll explore our nation's future and the future of economic development as we approach Canada's 150th birthday. You can order your tickets and review the club's full list of programs and events at, our, at uh, canadianclub.org, and you can also follow the conversation on Twitter, and please follow us at CDNCLBTO or by simply using that hashtag. Now to the main event. The three-page mandate letter for the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship makes it quite clear what the goals and objectives of this federal department are. Number one, to reopen Canada's doors to welcome those who want to contribute to our country's success. Atop the list of the Minister's priorities is leading government-wide efforts to resettle 25,000 Syrian refugees, which I understand will happen uh, shortly by the end of February. This is an incredible feat for such a new government and something that is going to impact us all in a very positive way. And this morning we're here and we have the pleasure of hosting the Honourable John McCallum to directly update us on the progress of what this resettlement program is doing and will in fact do for all of us. The Minister comes to this portfolio with a wealth of experience. He has served in the House of Commons for 16 years. He was first elected in 2000 and has been re-elected five times and brings a familiarity to his current position. His parliamentary roles have included serving as vice chair of the, stand, of the Standing Committee on Citizen and Immigration. And he also held the role of critic for citizenship and immigration, multiculturalism, and seniors. Members and guests, you may know that prior to his political career, Minister McCallum was a senior vice president and chief economist at the Royal Bank of Canada as well. He is the author or co-author of eight books or monographs and has written on fiscal and monetary issues, 
comparative macroeconomic performance of OECD countries, Canada-U.S. economic integration, and other economic issues. His financial background has been clearly an asset for all of us and for him on Parliament Hill. He served as Secretary of State for International Financial Institutions for a brief period in 2002, and then was appointed the Minister of National Revenue and Chair of the Expenditure Review Committee in 2014. And if that's not enough, we're also pleased to welcome uh, with the Minister, in conversation with him, Ratna Amidvar, whom is the Executive Director and Adjunct Professor of the Global Design Exchange at Ryerson, and whom I also had the pleasure of serving on the board of the Canadian Club of Toronto with just prior to this year. I would like to welcome them both to the stage, and I also like to remind our audience that they will, they will be taking questions from our audience, so join the conversation by filling out question cards that you should find at your table, and our staff will be kind enough to collect them and bring them up to Ratna and the Minister. And now, on behalf of myself, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto and our members and guests, Minister McCallum and Ratna, our stage is yours. So thank you to the Canadian Club for giving us this opportunity to have an open Q&A with the Minister. I'm not a journalist, but I've always had a sneaky desire to be Oprah. So just for today, Minister, think of me as Oprah and think of you as in that other chair. We'll keep it fluid and friendly and flexible as much as we can. So this event, as you can see, is sold out. People are very, very curious about updating, being getting updated on the Syrian refugee uh, uh, project. But I'd like to start a little bit with the bigger picture. And let's start with two words, sunny ways. Is this a philosophy? Is this a policy approach? And how do you, in your jurisdiction as Minister of Immigration, Citizenship, and Refugees, translate that poetry into pragmatism? Well, thank you, Radna, and thank you to the Canadian Club, and thank you to all of you for being here. It's a pleasure for me to join you and uh, give you this update in front of a, a, a very serious interrogator here, Madam Oprah. <laughs> But in terms of philosophy, let me start with uh, three points that okay. really guide us. And the first of these are what you might call Trudeau-esque. They're in my mandate letter. And the third is a bit more personal. Uh, when we talk about real change, one of the definitions of real change is that people do things they've never done before. And I don't think we have ever in this country before brought 25,000 fully verified refugees to Canada in the space of four months. And I think that this is something new for the public service. This is something new for Canada. And while I have said time and time again, it's more important to do it right than to do it fast. Uh, it's more important to get the security and the medical verified than to get them here uh, super fast. Nevertheless, if you've been to these refugee camps as I have, you will understand that it is also important to get them here as quickly as possible, subject to doing it right. So yes, we were <clears throat> 12 days late in our intermediate target of 10,000 by the end of the last year, but we will be easily on time for our uh, 25,000 target by the end of February, 
But the real challenge is not those numbers. The real challenge is to welcome our new Canadian friends uh, in a way that puts a roof under over their heads and makes them feel welcome in our wonderful country. And that is the main challenge we are embarked on today. So the first point is that we are doing real change. And the second point is how we communicate it. I have said many times this is a national project involving all Canadians. Therefore, all Canadians have the right to know how we are doing, and I have taken Canadians on a voyage through good points and bad points in bringing in these refugees. And so I have spoken to the media at least once a week to provide updates, or more often if called upon, and I think Canadians have a right to know what's going well, what's going less well. So I've told Canadians when we had issues with exit permits from Lebanon, with the medical processing going not fast enough, and then the military jumped in. And I've told Canadians the good point. So I think open, honest communication is central to what we are doing, and that will continue as we go through the ups and downs, maybe hopefully primarily ups, in terms of resettling our friends. And the last point I would make is that you heard by introduction all this boring economic stuff. Uh, defense aside, I've been mainly involved with economics, dollars, and things of that nature. But this is a different thing. This is different for me. It speaks from the heart. It speaks to what, what Canadians are. It's a message also to the whole world. That picture of Justin Trudeau meeting the first plane went around the world. So it also speaks to the world of who we are as Canadians. So it's an honor for me uh, to be involved in this. And the more I get involved going over to Lebanon and, uh, and Jordan and seeing the conditions over there, and the more I talk to Canadians, the more I think we are absolutely doing the right thing to bring over 25,000 people suffering from the horrors of a civil war, to bring them over the ocean, to welcome them and settle them in Canada. That is the right thing to do, and the large majority of Canadians agree. This room certainly agrees. Uh, I forgot about sunny ways. <laughs> no, no. We a, used to say that we want to welcome immigrants with, with a, a smile, smile, not a scowl. But since we're into sunny ways, I've dropped the scowl bit. We just, want to welcome them with a smile, smile, full stop. That's a sunnier way to express the same point. And you also want to keep Canadians smiling. So there is a strand of thought and I'm not one of those, but there are people who say there are homeless people in Canada, we are not able to meet the needs of our Aboriginal peoples, we know the state of the schools. How, do you, how are you keeping Canadians on side on this national project? Well, there's always this issue, and I guess I would say we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, we have many impoverished people, we have a huge challenge with Aboriginal Canadians, but at the same time, we have the worst refugee crisis the world has seen in decades. So we can do both. We can 
do our bit with the refugees. And my colleague Carolyn Bennett, for example, has a massive plan to also deal with Aboriginal Canadians. So it's not uh, one or the other. I am proud, and I think most Canadians agree with me, that we are doing the right thing on the refugees while not ignoring other challenges at home. And so uh, it's also a matter, as I think you're alluding to, Ratna, of dealing with the issue that while Canadians often will generally welcome the refugees, they will get annoyed, and rightly so, if a refugee goes to the front of a queue on social housing when Canadians have been waiting a year or more for that same social housing. So we have to have a balance here. We want to welcome the refugees warmly and generously, but we don't want to do it in such a way that other Canadians think that the new refugee Canadians are getting better treatment than they are. So that's a delicate balance. I think we've so far pulled it off okay. Uh, we don't hear too much criticism of the kind you are describing, but it is something of, of, on which we always have to be vigilant. So let's talk about the numbers. Yeah. 25,000, it's a hard number. By the end of February, it's a hard number. I looked at your website yesterday. To date, since November, roughly 11,000 plus, roughly half of them are government-assisted refugees. Even as you're stretching yourself to get to 25,000, temporary halts have been called in Vancouver and Ottawa where there is a capacity issue in meeting housing needs. Can you reconcile those two pieces of information, ramping up to 25,000 temporary halts in two major cities of reception? Yes, I can. Uh, <laughs> all this talk about meeting numerical targets, I think that's largely over with because it's like a wave. At the early days, it's slow, there are teething problems, but the wave builds, and the wave has built to the top, and we can quite easily bring over one, two, three, four, even five airplanes per day. So I can tell you that we have no problem in bringing over the 25,000 before the end of February. But the bigger challenge which people haven't totally woken up to, is no longer bringing them over, that's no problem now, is settling them well in this country, finding them a place to live, welcoming them, and all of those things. And yes, because there are large numbers of government-assisted refugees, which are much more difficult to deal with, because by definition, the privately sponsored ones have private sponsors or families or others to go to. The average government-assisted refugee knows nobody in this country, usually does not speak a word of English or French, and so it is a greater challenge to welcome all of these people. And I know that the settlement people are working day and night yes, on the ground, yes, but because the numbers are large, they have had problems either finding housing quickly or they don't have enough staff. Some of them are hiring more staff. And so a couple of places are taking a breather. But it's not a problem because there are other parts of the country crying out for refugees. I just came back from New Brunswick and a little town called Hampton in New Brunswick. 
uh, had raised $70,000 for refugees. They have two apartments ready for them. Uh, a Syrian family happens to live in the same building, so they're itching for refugees. Quebec is taking very many. Victoria wants many. So there are other places that the refugees can go to. And so I do think this is an issue that will be uh, resolved and the cities that are pressed will take a few days to hire the people to get things in order and then they will move on as well. Uh, so, Minister, I, I'm a private sponsor. As chair of Lifeline Syria, I have skin in the game. Raising the money was the least part of our problems. Our family arrived on the 18th of December. We were given two days of notice, but we're 11 people with extensive social capital. We're looking after them. Lifeline Syria has 300-plus sponsoring groups. Uh, they have raised the money or are raising the money. They're gearing up. They're waiting for their family. Some of them have to be matched. It's a longer process. And then there are all these government-assisted refugees in the hotels. Sometimes crisis creates innovation. Can you think of a way? Can you scope out a way where this artificial separation between privately sponsored and government-assisted refugees can be bridged by Canadian compassion, which, as far as I can see, is seemingly boundless? Well, sometimes they say lawyers never ask a question without knowing the answer. I think Ratner knows the answer to that question. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer either. <laughs> because she has proposed a pilot project, which I uh, totally agree with, uh, in which those who are waiting for privately sponsored refugees during the period in which they wait would be open to receiving government-assisted refugees. And... That is exactly what the doctor ordered, and yes. I will work uh, on that. Okay. Thank you. But I want to say something on this subject, which would be putting back my economist hat. I think you have implied or suggested that there's such an outpouring of support for privately sponsored refugees that we should have no upper limit on the amount. I think you I have said, said that. that there is no cap, no cap on Canadian compassion, okay. and therefore possibly you should consider no cap on private-sponsored refugees. I, I personally, I think annual figures are, are, are a problem, that you should have three-year figures, and you should let things ebb and flow over three years because geopolitical situations I, I change. I so. totally agree with the multi-year approach. Yeah. We have levels. Uh, only one year at a time now we are going to be moving to multi-year. But the problem with no cap or no limit is that money does not grow on trees. And we have already invested close to $700 million in this project. Yes. We're putting $50 million per year more into hiring more people to slow down processing times. And I can tell you, I see the outpouring of support from Canadian citizens for privately sponsored refugees. And I want to get as many as possible to be allowed into this country. But I will also tell you that there are competing demands. We can put in so much money and we can get so many total immigrants. And I hope that number will be big. But once you have your total, if you have one more refugee, you have one less of something else. We also have something approaching a crisis or <clears throat> a serious challenge that it takes in Canada 
a year and a half to two years to bring in your spouse from overseas. Whereas it takes four months, five months, six months for most countries with which we compare ourselves, like UK, US, Australia. So this is a huge challenge, and it is a major part of our election commitment to bring these spouses in faster to reunite nuclear families. So that's another competing demand. And if you think that it's easy to go to provincial governments and say, okay, <laughs> governments, will you take a few less provincial nominees, please, to make room for refugees and spouses? If you think that's easy, you haven't spoken to these provincial ministers. So what I am telling you is that I, I think as much as almost anybody, sense the outpouring of support from Canadians and will do as much as I possibly can to have as many as possible refugees to be allowed in. But I have to understand that there is a budget constraint yes. and I have to understand that there are family members who are desperately waiting to come in not to mention caregivers, not to mention parents and grandparents. So there are always competing demands which one has to reconcile. So we, we leave the numbers, but just with a final thought. Think about numbers as floors, not ceilings. Well, in I've a already month answered year, in a that month question. So let's just, let's just move on. All right. uh, we have a, a, a question that you've already answered, but I want to uh, note that former Mayor John Sewell's in the audience. Uh, he was the mayor of Toronto when the great Indo-Chinese movement to Toronto happened, and Lifeline Syria is, to a great part, uh, his idea. So he, his question was, his sponsor group is ready in Hillcrest. They want to go to a hotel. They want to be matched up with a government-assisted refugee because they do not want to wait anymore. Uh, so, but you've kind of answered that. We'll do this. I think that was your leading question, yes. and now you come at it coming, with a coming. specific case. But, 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 no, because... So both specifically yes. and generally, my answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> We've heard that. He said yes twice. That's wonderful. Let's move now on. Now all I have to do is get this massive department of mine to yes. do it. Yes. But I will work on that yes. for sure. So let's move on to something different but also important. We've seen what's happened in Europe and what's happening in Europe, and Canadians like to think that what happened in Cologne will not happen in Canada. Uh, do you think it will happen here? And if not, why not? And if yes, what will you do? Okay, now that is a great question, and we are obviously monitoring very closely what is happening in Germany and elsewhere. And I said at the start it was more important to do it right than to do it fast and in particular on health and security. And the heads of our three security agencies, um, the ICMP, CSIS, and Border Services, um, they, don't, they are not lapdogs. They are professional people. They don't just do what we tell them to do. They have independently professed themselves confident in our security measures. So I think <clears throat> we are doing the right thing there. Uh, and my colleague, Ralph Goodell, is working very hard to develop measures against uh, radicalization. Uh, this will be a big part of our program. But let me just say there's at least two very important differences between Canada and Germany. Well, there are many differences. But a big difference is that we have the Atlantic Ocean between us and Syria. 
And so Germany has had a million or more people just crossing their border, any people. We have, instead of a million, we have 25,000. And instead of anybody crossing our border, every single one of those 25,000 has been verified for security. And most of the people coming in are not single males, but they are families. So I think if you look at the totally different contexts, uh, we don't take anything for granted, but we think it is unlikely that there would be a repeat of that German situation. And the last thing I would say is that I am very slow to boast about Canada leading the world or being the best in the world in this, that, or the other, because often we are not, even though Canadians say we are. But I think one area in which we do lead the world is in building a multicultural society and successfully integrating newcomers into Canadian life. And so I think that gives us an advantage. And one example I like to give, Ratna, also involves Germany, that German ministers came to Canada a year or so ago, and they asked to have a meeting with the mayor of Markham. And Markham, according to StatsCan, is Canada's most diverse city. And those German ministers wanted to see the mayor of Markham to ask him how it was that Canada was so successful in integrating newcomers. So here are ministers from a country of 80 million plus coming to speak to the mayor of Little Markham to ask for his advice. So I do think we are, we have over time been good at integrating and settling and welcoming newcomers to our country. And so we cannot take anything for granted but I think this will stand us in good stead going forward. There's a question from the floor which you will love. There are okay. many real estate developers in Toronto. Could they be tapped to provide guidance and even housing for refugees? Absolutely. <laughs> You're right, I love that. We, one of our biggest challenges, I think we are meeting it over time, but it is a challenge, is, is housing. As I said earlier, we cannot put refugees at the front of queues for social housing, but somehow or other, we have to find housing for them. And if we and the government wanted to provide more money for this, first of all, we've already given a lot of money. Second, it could raise problems, because right now the refugees get approximately the same as someone giving social assistance. If we gave them a supplement for rent, we'd be giving them yep. more than Canadian welfare recipients are getting. So that's a bit of a challenge. So it's better if business steps up to the plate, which is why I've been asking business. And we've had, we set a $50 million target. So far we've raised over 20 million, but we only have just over 6 million in a fund specifically devoted to housing. So if, if real estate people and can come up some of them already have. We have real estate people in Calgary and Vancouver having already stepped up to provide subsidized uh, rental accommodation to refugees. The more people can do that, the better it will be to quickly welcome successfully our newcomer friends. Can you just, this, this $20 million fund or $50 million fund where you've got $20 million from Corporate Canada, that's wonderful, congratulations. How is that going to be distributed to government-assisted refugees? That's a very good question. 
Well, you always ask good questions, Ratna. I, I would say I, I would thank Corporate Canada for yes. all of that money. Uh, leading the charge has been CN with a $5 million donation. Uh, Royal Bank, my former employer, is up at two and a half, and others as well. Also communities, the Muslim community, the Sikh community, have come up with huge support, and it goes all the way down to little children built, making welcoming signs. So from CN at five million to yeah. the little children, so many Canadians have come out to support, and I am very grateful to all of them, and that is why it is truly a national project. But having just launched into that rhetoric, I forgot your question. What's the distribution mechanism? Oh, yes. Okay, there's the Community Foundation of Canada, led by Ian Bird, which is running this fund for housing. And they have hired experts to who are experts in rental subsidies to determine the most efficient, the fairest method of distributing these. And they are going to be announcing, if they haven't already, it's very soon, I think in Vancouver and or Calgary, how exactly that money will be distributed. So it is arm's length from the government. <clears throat> we don't control how they do it, but we are in touch, and I know they have these experts there who, who uh, advise them on how best to distribute that money in an efficient way. So I think that's wonderful that you're bringing new, new and unusual suspects to the table, including Corporate Canada, which to some extent has been involved, but to some extent not, community foundations. So that's wonderful. I want to get back to my family of 12 uh, wonderful people. Literacy levels are very low. And here's a question from the floor. The OECD in 2013 surveyed 27,000 Canadians. The survey showed that the level of literacy ability to read and write English or French is a significant predictor of health, financial success, and civic engagement. How will the Government of Canada ensure access to excellent literacy program programming for refugees? For refugees? Yes. Okay, well, this is a challenge because when we go after refugees that are government-assisted, we specifically want the most vulnerable people. And so we go through the United Nations, the UNHCR, who give us a list of those vulnerable people, and then we go after them to see if they want to come to Canada. And the UNHCR is very active in, in Jordan and very active in Lebanon. They are not active in Turkey. Turkey's our other target country. So Turkey has been slower. But the first plane from Turkey is arriving today, so that's good news. That's good news. Um, but the refugees who are by definition vulnerable, and I would say, if anything, the government-assisted ones are more vulnerable, they tend to be uh, not much education uh, and very little, if any, English or French. And this is not something we should be you know, sad about. This is a feature of being super vulnerable. And so a big job will be to teach them English or French. That's obvious, and that's job one. And also to get jobs which are appropriate to their skills, and also over time to upgrade those skills. 
And as you will know, there are many areas in which it has been difficult for companies to fill jobs. And one of the industries which came forward at the forum sponsored by the Governor General was the meatpacking industry. Yes. And they are desperate for employees and they are keen to welcome these refugees. Another point related to this is that two of the provinces who are the most keen to receive refugees are Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, partly because they're nice people who welcome refugees, but also because they desperately need more workers because their population is aging more than the rest of us, and so they're very anxious to receive these refugees, which I just saw recently in New Brunswick. And the Premier of New Brunswick has gone out of his way to say, not only can New Brunswick welcome them, but New Brunswick has jobs for them in areas like fish processing. So I think uh, that this will be a challenge because the typical government-assisted refugee doesn't have a great deal of education, certainly doesn't speak our languages, and so it will be a challenge to bring them up to speed but, you know, we have a history in this country of welcoming newcomers who are high-skilled, welcoming newcomers who are low-skilled. We need all types. And so I am sure that we in Canada uh, can give these people a good welcome and launch them onto wonderful lives in Canada. And this is, of course, an area where the provincial governments will play, will work very closely with you. With Absolutely. Literacy training and education. In the first phase of getting the people from there to here, it's primarily a federal operation. But once they get here, and it's a question of language and health and education and training, it's as much a provincial issue as it is a federal, and in many cases more. So I've spoken to every provincial counterpart. We've had meetings. I've spoken to more than 30 mayors. I discovered you can't call six mayors, <laughs> because then they talk to each other, and the other mayors aren't happy. So don't call six mayors. Budget at least 30 or don't call any. <laughs> but they're all working really well together. They're all, we're all on the same page, as long as you don't take away their provincial nominees. Uh, and so I think all levels of government, or they prefer to say all orders of government, are working very effectively together to make this happen. Okay, so I'm, there are lots of questions coming from the floor. Uh, but I'm tempted to move on from right. Syrian refugees because you are the Minister of Immigration, Citizenship and Refugees. Um, and, and at some point in their lives, refugees enter the mainstream of, of immigrant life. So this is all tied together. And, and let's shift to talent and the labor market. Last week, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce put out a report citing slow processes, unnecessary hurdles, increased fees before immigrant cat talent can be located to Canada. The new express entry system put in place by the previous government is, they say, unpredictable. It puts hurdles in the face of employers. We know it has a negative impact on international students who it disadvantages, in my view, international students studying in Canada and completed this. That should be front of the line. And it also impacts caregivers, a file that is, I know, close to your heart. What's your fix on this problem? All right. Nice, simple question over here. Uh, <clears throat> well, basically, you go to the heart of my mandate. Mm -hmm. And if you read my mandate letter, you will see that we have made various commitments in all of these areas. Refugees 
was job one because of the urgency, the speed with which we had to do it. But we have not forgotten the other things. And so um, certainly, as I've already indicated, speeding up family unification is a very important part of it. But we're also totally convinced that economic immigrants are absolutely essential to the future of our country, especially when we have an aging population and that immigration will be totally required to fuel our growth of the future. I mean, we're not aging as much as New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, but what they're experiencing today is a little bit like what the rest of the country will experience tomorrow. So we will become ever more dependent on immigrants. And we have to compete with other countries like Australia, UK, and uh, US to attract high, highly skilled immigrants. And one of the areas where we, which is the most fertile, is international students. Because by definition, they're educated. By definition, they know a little bit about Canada. And by definition, they can speak either English or French, or one hopes they can if they haven't cheated on these language tests. I don't think they do now, but I remember when I was a professor, Simon Fraser, they used back to. in 1978. No doubt things have improved since then. <laughs> I'd have some students who couldn't speak a word of English, and somehow they'd pass the test. I, I hasten that. I'm sure that's not the case today. But my point is that the international students are very fertile ground for us to find productive newcomers. And so we want to nurture them, we want to welcome them. And one thing you don't do is give them a punch in the nose by saying that whereas before 50% of their time in the country uh, counted towards citizenship, now it won't count anymore, which is what the previous government did, and that is one of the things that we are going to reverse, and we're also going to make conditions easier uh, for the international students in terms of jobs. Uh, in terms of express entry, mm -hmm. uh, we in the Liberal Party didn't really comment positively or negatively on it because it was brand new. And what we said is we would monitor it, we would see how it, uh, how it goes, and we would work to improve it. And now we have this Chamber of Commerce report, which is timely from my point of view. People in my department not, might not like it. They say there are some mistakes in it, which may be the case. But from our point of view, as a new government, it's timely because we want to assess express entry and make improvements as required. And one of the issues which the Chamber of Commerce raised is that they don't think it should be required to have a labor market impact assessment mm -hmm. for immigrants coming in under express entry. I don't think temporary foreign workers, workers are different, yeah. Yeah. but traditionally Canada for permanent residents has not required uh, such a case to be made. So that is one thing we will be looking at. That's good. We have five minutes left and I have two very important questions to ask you. So let's try and, and, and give the audience uh, their early morning breakfast worth okay. of the whole picture. And I, my, my second last question is about citizenship. citizenship. Citizenship has been the gold standard of Canada 
In the past, more than 85% of immigrants were citizens within a certain time of year. In the last three years, there's been a slip, and there's lots of debate about how much that slip is, but there is a generally recognized uh, uh, reality, which is citizenship is much harder to get today and much easier to lose. Well, thank Comments. you. That could be called the love ball question, for which I thank you. Because this is something which we take very seriously, and I think there's two aspects to it. First of all, we believe that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, and that nobody's citizenship should be revoked. Uh, yes. With one exception, uh, citizenship in the past has been revoked if you give false information coming into the country. For example, if you were a Nazi war criminal and you come in and you say well, you were yeah. a priest, we could take away the citizenship. That's always been the case. But for no other reason will it be possible for a government to revoke an individual's citizenship, and that will become very clear very soon. The second aspect of it is that we totally disagree with the premise of the conservative government C24 legislation that the more difficult it is to become a Canadian, the more valuable is that citizenship. In my view, that makes no sense. And I said earlier, we're in competition with other countries. And one of the ways in which we can compete is welcome individuals sooner rather than later and with fewer rather than more barriers to become a citizen of this country. Yes, they should know something, but all of the additional barriers and additional tests and limitations and requirements that the Conservatives put into that legislation, most of those we're going to scrap because we believe that we want to welcome citizens quickly as possible, subject to certain conditions, yes. Uh, so a lot of that bill will be totally uh, eliminated, repealed, as you will see soon, to satisfy those two principles. One, don't revoke citizenship. Citizenship is a sacred thing, which it should not be within the power of government to revoke. If a person is a terrorist, send that person to jail. If the person is a really bad terrorist, send that person to a jail for a long, long time. Yeah. But don't distinguish between two classes of citizens. We're all the same. We all have equal rights, and that is a principle which we will implement. So we, we, look, uh, we really look forward to those changes. So I have one last question. I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to ask you for some closing poetry here. Uh, your mandate letter from my Prime Minister Trudeau is very granular. It has a lot of items in it which I would say are undoing, as the Citizenship Act, the, the actions of the past government. But you want to be remembered, not with what you undid, but what you did. What's, what do you think your legacy, if one can speak about that in these early days, on immigration will be? And what would success look like? Poetry, short words now. because. Uh, Danny is going to throw me off the stage. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, undoing is easy. You turn on or off a switch. Some of the things are more difficult, like bringing down the processing times. 
You don't change a ship on a dime, and that will take time and resources and effort. But my vision of immigration, and I'm not thinking legacy. I've only been here a couple yeah. of months, right? But what we want to achieve is first to welcome newcomers with a smile. And I think that the refugees is a part of that. We want to make them as welcome as possible and successfully integrate into Canada the way previous waves of refugees from Uganda and Vietnam and elsewhere have already done. But more generally, we want to convert the immigration department from an, a, the perception of an unfriendly place, mm -hmm. unreasonable, not displaying any empathy towards newcomers, into a newcomer-friendly place, which will do all it can to uh, welcome newcomers as much as possible with a smile and with help and not find every reason under the sun to say no. So partly this involves a change in attitude and that will take time. We will try to impart that change. I think some of our employees uh, have sort of been led to believe that their main job is to keep people out, whereas we want them to think that the main job is to let people in. That's a wonderful answer, Minister. So we, we, we end off where we started, sunny ways. You have an incredibly important job. We wish you all the best, and you will always be a favorite guest on this most prominent of podiums in Toronto, the Canadian Club. May I ask Michael Bach, uh, a director of the Canadian Club, to do the closing? Uh, thank you, Ratna. I, I have the pleasure of kicking you off the stage. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Michael Bach, and I'm the CEO of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, and, and more importantly, I'm a director of the Canadian Club Toronto. Minister McCallum, on behalf of the Canadian Club Toronto, please accept our thanks and appreciation for updating us on uh, your government's efforts to resettle 25,000 refugees from Syria, but also on the important issues of immigration in Canada. Canada has long enjoyed an international reputation as a place of refuge. Historically, our humane, reasoned, and sensitive approach to immigration and resettlement has been the envy of nations around the world. I am a sixth-generation Canadian. I often say that my people didn't come here on a boat, they came here on the boat. <laughs> but with the exception of our Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples, we are all immigrants, whether we came here today or a lifetime ago. And as Canadians, we have a right and responsibility to ensure that the 25,000 Syrians who are arriving into the balmy winter that we're having are able to transition from refugee to newcomer as quickly as possible by helping them to find not only housing and education, but also to find jobs in their chosen profession. Minister, under your leadership and the leadership of this government, you're showing the world what can be done through a measured and thoughtful approach that is having an impact. So on behalf of everyone who's joined us here today, but also on behalf of all Canadians, I want to thank you for making us proud on the world stage. Thank you. Ratna, um, what, what is one to say? I have always thought of you as Oprah. Um, mainly because I see you as a beautiful African-American woman. Um, 
but also because you are a powerhouse. You're a powerhouse in this city, you're a powerhouse in this country, and around the world on this important issue. Thank you for sharing your passion, for asking the minister some tough questions. I'm glad I wasn't up there. Um, And for holding this government accountable for this important topic. So thank you to you as well. Great. And thank you, Michael. And uh, I'd like to echo his sentiments. And as president of the Canadian Club, one of the privileges I have is to sometimes reflect on what we've accomplished in our mandate in a particular event. And here is a true reflection of that with the minister's comments and Ratna's conversation are two things that I can see clearly. Number one, internally, ourselves. This cross-section of Canadians that is here today from all walks of life and all backgrounds that are interested and want to participate and make this country stronger and will clearly be an important force in making sure that these new wave of refugees get integrated and are the most productive generation of refugees that we have successfully integrated to date. And then secondly, externally, and uh, Minister, you referred to this, which is what distinguishes us abroad. And it is clear that this is where I think your economics, your experience, your arguments, and your leadership on this immigration and social issue come together. And it reminds me of a very quick anecdote of something that we all can remember of how this can truly make our economy stronger. And this was, I believe, in the 2000s, Microsoft opened a a research uh, uh, facility in Richmond, B.C., And the president of Microsoft at that time, I think it was Steve Ballmer, was asked, why Canada? And, you know, people were expecting taxes or they were expecting some reason that we all uh, would think is kind of a bottom line answer. And his response, if I recall correctly, was, why Canada? It's because we consciously looked around the world and we thought, where on the planet Earth today could we bring, I believe, 40 different nationalities from different backgrounds and different languages and have them in one country where they could all feel welcome, they could all feel productive, and truly make a difference to our company. So there is no doubt that that is going to lead us into the 21st century and this competitive world that you talked about will be well served by your leadership. And I think I echo what all Canadians say when you said it's more important to do it right and not do it fast, and we are confident with what we've heard from you today that you will do it right. Thank you again, Minister McCallum. This... This concludes our program. Again, we hope to see you at future events. Check our website at canadianclub.org or join us on Twitter, CLBCDNTO. Thank you again. This meeting is now adjourned, and good morning. Thank you.